Good evening, I'm William Brangham. Amna Nawaz and Jeff Bennett are away. On the news hour tonight, Alexei Navalny's widow accuses the Kremlin of covering up the opposition leader's killing and vows to continue his fight for a free Russia. Poland's foreign minister discusses the state of Ukraine's nearly two-year-long war with Russia and the impact Congress's stalling of U.S. support is having on the battlefield. Without the United States, we are behind the curve in making the stuff that Ukraine needs to, to defend itself. And the conservative group behind allegations of illegal ballot stuffing in Georgia's 2020 election admits it has no evidence to support its claims. Welcome to the news hour. Russia has cemented a substantial battlefield win in eastern Ukraine tonight after a grinding four-month fight. Moscow says its forces cleared the last Ukrainian defenders from Avdika, a bombed-out city in the Donetsk region. Russian military footage showed attacks on a sprawling industrial site in Avdika. Ukraine said its forces had to retreat because of a lack of ammunition. President Volodymyr Zelensky warned today that Russia is exploiting the delay of new American aid. Twenty-six members of the European Union are calling for an immediate humanitarian pause in Gaza. That came today as Hamas health officials reported the Gaza death toll has passed 29,000. And Israel released security camera video purportedly showing a hostage and her two small boys wrapped in a sheet. They were seen in Khan Yunus in Gaza just after being taken captive in October. The U.N.'s top court has kicked off a six-day hearing into Israel's 57-year occupation of the land that Palestinians want for a state of their own. Diplomats filed into the International Court of Justice at The Hague today. The Palestinian foreign minister opened with accusations of Israeli apartheid. No occupying power, including Israel, can be granted a perpetual veto over the rights of the people it occupies. Successive Israeli governments have given the Palestinian people only three options. Displacement, subjugation, or death. Israel submitted a written statement that alleged the hearing does not address Israeli rights and security concerns. The court is due to issue a non-binding opinion some months from now. Houthi fighters in Yemen carried out new attacks on shipping vessels today in continued retaliation for Israel's assault on Gaza. The Iran-backed group says it again targeted ships in the Gulf of Aden. That follows Sunday's attack on a ship in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. A missile caused severe damage, forcing the crew to abandon ship. Back in this country, a Minneapolis suburb is in mourning after a Sunday shooting that killed two policemen and a firefighter. They'd answered a domestic dispute call in Burnsville when a heavily armed man opened fire. He was later found dead and seven children in the house were unhurt. Last night, the community gathered for a candlelight vigil. They paid tribute to those killed and offered praise to the town's police force. We need to find a way to really honor these three and and just all police officers, you know, that protect and serve is all over our Burnsville police cars. And I just think they do. They protect and they serve, you know, they're they run towards trouble and uh, to keep other people safe. 
In a further tribute, flags were lowered to half-staff across Minnesota today. The latest in a string of winter storms has moved into California, and it could bring new flooding and even tornadoes. Forecasters called for 5 to 10 inches of rain in central California before the storm moves south in coming days. It's expected to be milder than the so-called atmospheric river earlier this month, in part because it is moving faster. And on Australia's Christmas Island, the famous red crabs are scuttling behind schedule. In typical years, more than 100 million crabs blanket the ground and block traffic as they scramble to the sea to mate. But wildlife officials say lack of rain has largely put this great migration on hold. The last uh, six to nine months of 2023 was exceptionally dry. So dry that when the crabs would normally migrate in October and November. We had no rainfall and they didn't migrate. All told, this is already the latest crab migration since tracking began in the 1980s. Still to come on the news hour, Tamara Keith and Amy Walter break down the latest political headlines. Actor Paul Giamatti on his Oscar-nominated performance in The Holdovers. Students and their teacher give their brief but spectacular take on building trust, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Alexei Navalny's suspicious death Friday in a Russian Arctic prison continues to reverberate around the globe. World leaders, including President Biden, spoke today of stepped-up sanctions against Russia as Navalny's widow picked up his fight against Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Russian authorities said they would hold Navalny's remains for a further two weeks. Heavy with equal parts grief and resolve, Yulia Navalnaya released this video today, vowing to keep up her husband's fight. By killing Alexei, Putin killed half of me, half of my heart, and half of my soul. But I still have the other half, and it tells me that I have no right to give up. I will continue the work of Alexei Navalny, continue to fight for our country. I urge you to stand next to me, to share not only my grief and endless pain, but also to share the rage. Navalny's cause of death remains unknown. Russian authorities blocked Navalny's mother from the morgue where her son's body is believed to be held. Across Russia, more than 50,000 people have now signed a petition demanding Navalny's body be released. Today, his widow met with European Union ministers in Brussels as they weighed how to respond to the dissident's death. What has happened reminds us all of the repressive uh, and oppressive uh, nature of the regime in the Russian Federation and of how uh, President Putin has ruthlessly um, put down any opposition uh, and, and suppressed uh, any dissent. In Moscow, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov blasted Western leaders who've blamed Putin for Navalny's death. An investigation is underway, and all necessary actions in this regard are being carried out. But so far, the results of this investigation have not been made public, and in fact, they're unknown. Therefore, in conditions when there is no valid information, we believe that it is absolutely inadmissible to make such well, frankly, boorish statements. Makeshift memorials have popped up across Russia as mourners pay tribute to Navalny's legacy. 
He was a very strong person, and I think all of Russia is suffering because we lost such a hero. In St. Petersburg, men clad in black removed flowers from a memorial, carrying them away in garbage bags. But moments later, Navalny supporters returned to replace them. Other memorials have also been dismantled across the country, and police have detained nearly 400 people for attending events commemorating Navalny's death. With less than a month to go before Russia's national election, and with Putin's victory all but certain, Navalny's death further scatters and weakens an already thin opposition movement. For the latest on Navalny's death and what it might mean for the future of Russia's opposition movement, we turn to Andrei Soldatov. He's a Russian investigative journalist and a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Andrei, thank you so much for being here. It has been four days since Navalny's death was announced. Russian authorities have not allowed his family to see his body or take possession of his body. What do we know about the circumstances surrounding his death? Well, to be honest, uh, the circumstances are getting more and more mysterious. Uh, the initial official version was that he died on the 16th, uh, but now there are some reports from unofficial reports uh, from his penal colony that probably he died the day before, because that when uh, there was a lot of unusual activities, lots of cars uh, coming to uh, this place, and apparently it was somehow connected to his sudden death. Uh, why he died, we still do not know, we have no clue. The official reason is sudden death, whatever it means. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, the family doesn't have any access to his body. Do you think that his family will ever truly know what happened? I very much hope so. Uh, of course, we have uh, a very long record of uh, political assassinations under mysterious circumstances uh, of the last 20 plus years under Vladimir Putin. And every time it was extremely difficult to establish the cause, uh, and we have a number of uh, poisonings, and uh, with very few people we actually know what uh, was used against them. In several cases, we, even now, after 20 years, we do not know, for instance, what uh, was used against the famous Russian journalist Yuri Shikachikhin in 2003, and what was used against uh, Anna Politkovskaya. President Biden and many other leaders have have squarely placed the blame for this death on Vladimir Putin. Do you share that belief? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think what we have been uh, seeing over the last three years uh, it was a deliberate, uh, systematic effort to uh, to kill uh, Navalny, not just to isolate him, but to kill him, moving him up north to more and more horrible conditions. And what happened before, I mean, his poisoning is, uh, is a very clear uh, sign that uh, he was uh, a target uh, of a political assassination. It just failed uh, back then, but they didn't fail now. We also know that Vladimir Putin, being a very practical man, uh, made the political assassination part of his uh, toolkit. And now we can say that, well, we have the upcoming election. Uh, Putin is extremely nervous. Again, it makes a perfect practical sense for him. Can you help me understand something, though? Because after that poisoning that Navalny survived, he returned to Russia. He had to know 
that he would be imprisoned perhaps for the rest of his life. Help us understand why he might have done that. Uh, first of all, Navalny didn't believe uh, in his political future in exile. He believed that he needed to get back and that he needed to uh, conduct his political activity in the country. Uh, he was a strong believer of this idea. Of course, now the circumstances completely changed, but remember that it was before the full-scale invasion started, and it, it appeared to some people, including Navalny, that there was still some room for legitimate political activity in the country. He also built a, uh, a very impressive network of uh, supporters all over the country, and he didn't want to... Uh, to abandon them, and he believed that ethically he needed to be with them in Russia. Uh, of course, he took his chances, and uh, it was uh, it was extremely brave. But well, Vladimir Putin decided to imprison him and finally to kill him. What does this do to the opposition movement in Russia? I mean, that that movement has been splintered and fractured and disparate for many, many years. Now, with its ostensible leader gone, what does that do to that movement? Well, uh, it's impossible to deny that it is a, a horrible blow, uh, because, as you pointed out, uh, yes, uh, the movement was never... Uh, cohesive, and uh, there were always problems and uh, arguments within the community of Russian activists and um, opposition politicians. Navalny was the most popular uh, politician, uh, and of course, it is a blow. At the same time, he and his organization made possible several things which Russian uh, political opposition believed was the, just impossible. For instance, he organized protests in Russian regions. Uh, and uh, we always had this uh, concept that Russian liberals live only in big cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg. Uh, Navalny changed that. For that, he built an organization. For that, he got his supporters and network of people. These people are still there. They are not uh, going anywhere. Uh, some of them are still in the country. Some of them left, but they are all... Uh, very much active, and they determined to uh, remain active politically. All right, Andrei Soldatov, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Along NATO's eastern flank are several former Soviet satellite states, each with long and bitter memories of Russian dominance. Those nations are among the strongest supporters of Ukraine's fight against Russia's invasion and of American support for Europe more broadly. One nation loudly making that argument is Poland. Over the weekend, Nick Schifrin sat down with Poland's foreign minister, Radoslaw Sikorski. They talked at the Munich Security Conference, which highlighted Europe's anxieties about Putin's invasion and about America's resolve. Well, Mr. Scorsi, thank you very much. Welcome back to the news hour. Uh, as of now, the U.S. House of Representatives uh, has not approved vital military aid to Ukraine. Already, as we know, Ukraine is rationing ammunition. What impact is the debate in the U.S. having on American credibility? Well, first of all, remember that Europe has contributed financially more to the effort uh, than the United in total, States. In total. When yeah. you count uh, Brussels and the member states. Mm -hmm. 
Secondly, remember that this is money for weapons to be manufactured in the United States. Thirdly, the Ukrainians have already destroyed half of uh, President Putin's army without the involvement of a single American uh, soldier. And lastly, that um, it's much cheaper to help Ukraine now than it will be if Putin conquers Ukraine and then has to be deterred. So we think this is good value for money uh, and that this uh, package is, uh, is important. We appeal to the House of Representatives to Mike Johnson personally. Speaker of the House, yeah. To please let it go to a vote. Do you believe it is damaging U.S. credibility? Well, if Ukraine, having been encouraged to resist, uh, the President of the United States having um, put his standard on the ground in Kiev, in the famous historic visit, then doesn't deliver on assistance that would send a message around the globe that um, that you have to be careful because uh, the United States, for important uh, but uh, regrettable reasons, might not be able to come through for you. Be careful, you mean trusting the United States in the future. And that would have important implications, not only in Eastern Europe, but around the globe, where there are other allies that feel exposed, uh, um, bordering on more powerful countries. Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, others, uh, Philippines, Australia even. Um, and so the world is watching. Uh, this, this really is not only about Ukraine. Can Europe make up the shortfall for Ukraine if the U.S. does not send military aid? We can make up financially, but there is literally not enough production capacity of shells and of equipment. Uh, we are 20 times bigger than Russia economically, but Russia has gone on to uh, war footing. It's producing uh, ammo 24-7. We haven't. And without the United States, we are behind the curve in making the stuff that Ukraine needs to, to defend itself. Many people here have admitted that Ukraine could lose without these weapons, but can Ukraine win with these weapons? It has struggled to even match its own uh, goals for the counteroffensive last year. Uh, Ukraine has recovered 50% of the territory that the Russians once occupied, and Ukraine has cleared the Russian Navy from half of the Black Sea and is now exporting grain, not thanks to Putin's uh, permission, but uh, despite his best, best efforts. Um, we, they just need the tools to do the job. They are doing God's work on our behalf. We just need to uh, enable them because they can't defend themselves with bare hands. If Ukraine doesn't get these weapons, should it negotiate an end of the war? Uh, well, then it will be U.S. responsibility for having brought that about, for having um, um, allowed Putin to abolish a taboo that we established after two bloody world wars, that you may not change borders by force. Uh, it would then get noticed by dictators uh, and aggressors around the world. That yes, the West will huff and puff, the America will, that America will encourage to fight, but when it comes, uh, when push comes to shove, you can get away with it. And that would then be, be a very costly proposition. I noticed, though, you don't say no. I mean, do you think Ukraine should negotiate into the war if it doesn't have enough weapons? Look, I've said it before. There is never a shortage of pocket chamberlains willing to trade other people's freedom or land for their own peace of mind. 
the, if it were to come to pass, these should be Ukrainian judgments. It's their people who are being conquered, who are being uh, uh, expelled, their children who are being stolen, not ours. I know you're not going to want to talk about U.S. domestic politics, but I do have to ask about comments made by the former president recently in which he questioned whether NATO should defend countries that don't meet the 2% threshold of GDP spending uh, in terms of defense spending. Do you believe the damage has already been done in some ways, that the very questioning of Article 5, the idea that the U.S. would come to European defense, no matter which European country was attacked inside of NATO, do you think that's already damaged Article 5? Uh, we heard, we heard uh, Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, reporting to the uh, Munich Security Conference that this year 18 NATO allies will uh, be spending uh, at least 2%. Poland, I think, is number one, actually. Um, uh, so let's, uh, let's hope that uh, what the former president meant was to uh, uh, energize us, to uh, accelerate the increase of defense budgets. We prefer to remember that uh, under his administration, the U.S. sent anti-tank weapons uh, to Ukraine. Is 18 countries out of 31, presumably soon to be 32, is that enough countries meeting their 2% threshold? Uh, we, some countries are behind the curve. The flank countries are not. Uh, it's not by... The eastern flank. It is not by accident that the closer you are to Russia, the, the, the more you're spending on defense. <laughs> In the past, Poland has resisted or worried about Europe making military plans, mil uh, making defense plans outside of NATO. Are you reconsidering those uh, worries in, that you've had in the past? A very high-ranking Pentagon official told me the U.S. now supports European defense. They know that there may come circumstances in which, irrespective of who's president, you may be engaged in another part of the world and you want to have the freedom, uh, the knowledge that the Europeans can at least to some extent fend for themselves, uh, provide their own security. This uh, means that we need to develop some capabilities. Outside of NATO? This, this, this should be done in strategic harmony with the United States and then I think is actually helpful to the United States. Foreign Minister Scorsi, thank you very much. Thanks. One of the key groups spreading false allegations of a rigged 2020 presidential election recently admitted to a Georgia judge it has no evidence to support its claims. The group is called True the Vote, and its accusations of widespread voter fraud became the basis for several conspiracies around the 2020 contest. Those debunked claims continue to be repeated by former President Donald Trump and many leading Republicans in the lead-up to this year's election. Laura Barone-Lopez has been following all of this, and she joins us now. Hi, Laura. Hi. So what were these claims, and, and how did they come apart like this? True the Vote made repeated unfounded allegations of widespread 
of widespread voter fraud in 2020, specifically True the Vote, had quite a few key claims. One, that a network of ballot mules paid $10 per ballot to be stuffed into boxes, that they were contacted by an informant who took part in the alleged ballot scheme, that they had a team of, quote, researchers and investigators providing evidence of fraud, and that they received 117 hotline calls from Georgia residents about voting irregularities. Now, the Georgia State uh, Board of Elections filed a lawsuit against the group after, after they repeatedly tried to get information from them investigating this these allegations of voter fraud. True the Vote never handed that over. So then finally, a judge ordered True the Vote to respond with any information they may have to support their claims. True the Vote responded in their recent legal filing with the same answer to each request for evidence, saying True the Vote has no such documents in its possession, custody, or control. And Former President Donald Trump has repeated uh, these concocted claims by True the Vote, not just around 2020, but even to today. I mean, it's such an unbelievable admission to say we don't have the evidence. Many of those allegations, though, did become the, the sort of backbone for a lot of these baseless conspiracy theories. Can you sort of sketch out how that became so integral here? Yeah, yes. Donald Trump's lies about the 2020 election led to many in his orbit taking on the mantle. And so True the Vote, founded by Katherine Engelbrecht, peddled conspiracies about election officials and voter fraud in Georgia and beyond. True the Vote's allegations were then picked up and amplified by businessman Mike Lindell and Dinesh D'Souza, a Trump ally who made a film called 2000 Mules about baseless claims of people traveling to multiple ballot boxes to vote. Voter fraud allegations were also circulated by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, attorneys who were co-conspirators in Trump's attempts to overthrow the 2020 election, William. I spoke to Denver Riggleman, a former Republican congressman from Virginia who worked on the House's January 6th committee that investigated the efforts of election subversion, and he described this as an orchestrated network of lies. What it comes down to, true the vote is just part of a massive, you know, sort of multi-headed monster uh, of groups that want to monetize lies. There's never been any proof. And it's always the same people, Laura. It's the same people pushing this. It's a massive grift. And I've said it before, I believe this could have been the largest grift in American history. True the Vote, as Denver Riggleman noted, and all of those figures that we highlighted, William, had ample airtime on Fox News to repeat those election lies. And as you were saying, the former president continues to perpetuate those lies and spread them. Um, how much of this is going to continue to be a part of the former president's campaign? Since he launched his campaign, William, former President Donald Trump has repeated election lies saying that a rigged system is persecuting him and he has made vows to uh, seek retribution. The radical left Democrats rigged the presidential election in 2020 and we're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election in 2024. You hear there, William, he's again laying the foundation as he did in 2020, priming his supporters to believe that if he loses this year, that 2024 will have been rigged. So we heard former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman there pushing back on some of this. But as you know, he's out in the political wilderness like, like Liz Cheney is. Is perpetuating this election lie now requirement for being in the modern day GOP? 
Well, William, let's check the receipts. Elise Stefanik, the third-ranking House Republican, uh, as well as Republican Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio, were recently asked if they would have done what then-Vice President Mike Pence did in certifying the 2020 election results. I would not have done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. If I had been vice president, I would have told the states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and so many others that we needed to have multiple slates of electors, and I think the U.S. Congress should have fought over it from there. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, a Republican who campaigned against Donald Trump, has also refused to answer that question. And all three of them, Tim Scott, J.D. Vance, and Elise Stefanik, are potentially on the short list for Trump's uh, vice presidential picks. I spoke to Denver Riggleman about this as well, and he said that election denialism has become a litmus test for the modern GOP under Donald Trump. They're pushing the same type of conspiratorial thinking there's no way that the election was stolen. It's been proven over and over again. And what they're doing is they're just allowing the base to drive them where they need to go so they can win re-election or have some kind of favor, if Trump were to win, to have some kind of favor in his administration. Another example, William, of this loyalty paying off is that former President Donald Trump is pushing an election denier, Michael Watley, to be the new chairman of the Republican National Committee. He's also pushing for his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be a co-chair to the committee. I mean, we saw what all of this misinformation and lies did to the country in the last election cycle. If this keeps up, what do you imagine this means for 2024? Former uh, Congressman Denver, Denver Riggleman told me that he's concerned that uh, voters are continuing to believe this, that when he talks to Republican voters in his rural area of Virginia, that they say that they already think that 2024 is being stolen by Democrats. Election workers are preparing for potential uh, continued threats of violence against them in preparation for the election this year. And election denialism has become so baked into the GOP, William, but it's also something that Americans are starting to accept as a part of the Republican Party. According to a poll conducted by CNN, the majority of voters surveyed said they didn't think Donald Trump would concede the 2024 election if he were to lose. Really such troubling reporting. Laura Barone-Lopez, thank you so much. Thank you. The presidential primary season could come closer to an effective end later this week after voters in South Carolina finish casting their votes on Saturday. Meanwhile, there is no end in sight for former President Trump's legal troubles or for the debate on Capitol Hill over continuing funding for Ukraine's defense. For more on all of this, we turn to our Politics Monday analysts, Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Tamara Keith of NPR. Welcome to you both. So nice Thank to you, see you. Lydia. Thanks for being here on the holiday. Um, Tam, let's talk about South Carolina. Um, Trump has a commanding 30-point lead, if you believe all the polls, over former U.N. ambassador and former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley. If she gets totally blown out of the water in her home state, uh, how, how does she go forward? She just proceeds forward without a mandate to proceed, uh, which has been her entire time in this primary. Um, you know, she says, 
We've got it down to the race I want. It's just me against Trump. And guess what? Uh, Republican primary voters seem to want Trump. Um, so she is saying that she's going to keep competing through Super Tuesday, at least. She's been out, to, and that's in early March, March 5th. She's been out to several of those states to hold events. She's also been holding a lot of events in South Carolina. Trump has held very few. Um, but he may not need to, it turns out. Uh, so she can keep going as long as she has the money to keep going and as long as she's willing to sort of take what other, whatever political damage comes from losing yeah. a lot. That's the question. Is it political damage or is she positioning herself in a way that she can get something politically from doing this? Uh, you know, everybody something comes like in... What? Well, is she going to be a the voice... Uh, somebody wrote the other day... You the voice of, I told you so, <laughs> after the election. Mm. She's been saying over and over again on the campaign trail, he can't win. He Every time Trump has been on the ballot, he's lost. Our candidates have lost. And so if he does lose in 2024, people look to her and say, oh, right, she was the one who told us all along, and we will now look to her for other political advice going forward. That may not happen, but that's certainly one pathway. The other is you're hearing from folks from the wing of the party, some known as the anti-Trump wing, others in the former establishment wing, the sort of Reagan wing of the party, that she will continue to carry that torch going forward, that there will always be this element in the Republican Party of a strong interventionist, um, culturally but mostly fiscally conservative party, and that even though Trump is ascendant now, she will be the one carrying that piece of the party and their agenda forward in whatever form that takes. Theoretically, you could go forward and amass a bunch of delegates and then have some leverage going into a, con a party convention. But the way that the process works, South Carolina is one of these, it's a winner-take-all system. So right. even getting 40% of the vote gets you Nothing. zero. It's not right. like the Empty Democrats. Empty-handed. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that is her calculation here, that she, it just seems that, you, I understand the theory that you're describing, but it seems that the GOP is, is not interested in having a principled Republican-esque critic in its midst. Certainly not. And just look at who uh, former President Trump wants to lead the Republican Party. He wants to get rid of uh, an RNC chairwoman who has been pretty darn loyal to him and replace him. This is Ronna McDaniel. And replace Ronna McDaniel with with uh, his, his daughter in law, daughter -in -law with his own with right. members of his own Laura family. Trump. Um, you know, the longer Nikki Haley stays in this primary, it's not that it helps her with the delegate math, but the longer she stays in, the more Trump's challenges, legal challenges, financial challenges, all of these issues, the longer they have to come to light. Now we know that there's a trial that will start in New York on March 25th, as long as it sticks. Um, he's had this big ruling against him, huge fines and fees that he has to pay. So she is able to more clearly make the argument she's been making all along, which is like, whoa, ho, is this really who right. we want to nominate? Right. But then it still comes back to the same problem, in the Republican primary, the answer is still yes. yes. Right. Yeah, that's the right. primary voters have been crystal clear about that thus yeah. far. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that, the, some of the legal troubles that, that uh, Tam is bringing up. Huge, multi, multi, hundreds of millions of dollars, which could be a potential dent on his ability to spend money going forward, but also the Stormy Daniels case, the January 6th case potentially, 
maybe Georgia, maybe Mar-a-Lago in the classified documents. I know you're always reluctant to say that this will have an impact or not, but do you think that any of those cases could meaningfully change this election? Yeah, so it is a question that is going to get asked a lot throughout the entirety of this campaign. Right now, it feels like for so many voters, this is white noise. Even these judgments against Donald Trump have not gotten any sort of traction. It hasn't changed the math in the right. Republican primary, and it certainly hasn't changed it in the general election. So the question becomes, if there is a criminal, if there's criminal liability, he's found guilty in one of these cases you mentioned, the documents case or January 6th, is that going to change people's mind? I think what's going to be fascinating to watch is, first of all, how this question gets asked of voters. Right now, it's very hypothetical. And then if something does happen, do voters' opinions of it change over time? That the immediate reaction may be different from, as Tam pointed out, are we really going to do this um, once we get mm. to October and November? Where you could see voters rallying behind Trump, maybe. You could also see them saying, no, I'm not going to vote for him, but then rally around him at, at the end. Um, this is also going to take an effort, I think, on the Biden campaign's part to make this part of the campaign, right? It's not just this event's going to happen and then organically voters are going to end up where they end up. The job of a opposition campaign is to make that certainly a centerpiece. Is Biden going to do that? Because he's thus far been reluctant to touch mm -hmm. Trump's legal woes when they've been obvious targets to shoot at. He has not. Biden has been reluctant personally. His campaign has also been extremely reluctant. Uh, they feel like the legal challenges that Trump has get a lot of attention. Uh, just think about he had there were dueling court hearings last week and and, you know, he got to hold court outside of the courthouse both before the, the uh, trial date was set and then afterwards. He's getting a lot of attention about this for now, at least they think it's getting enough attention. They'd like voters to focus on what does this mean for them rather than what does this mean for Donald Trump. And they're struggling to get voters to actually focus on that. They're struggling with that message, but they're trying to figure out how to do it. Um, you know, I, I think that for Trump, these first cases on the calendar, if you look at it, uh, the the civil cases that and penalties that he's faced in New York, na the next case being the Stormy Daniels hush money slash campaign finance violation and, and uh cooking the books, uh, or that's not the right phrase. But um, those cases are all in New York. He's done a fairly good mm -hmm. job of convincing definitely Republican voters, but even people who are not Republican voters, that these... These are New York City liberals York, who hate me. Yes, these that's are right. New York City liberals who hate me. These cases shouldn't count against me. This is a this this is particularly a witch hunt. You you don't necessarily get to a case where voters haven't had <laughs> haven't been convinced of this. You don't get out of New York for quite some time in the calendar. Let's shift across the Atlantic for a second. Um, the Munich Security Conference just wrapped up this weekend. We just saw Nick's tremendous interview with the Polish foreign minister talking about this this yearning for Europe to know where America stands. Yeah. Are we going to support Ukraine? Are we not? That's I mean, right. they just lost a city to the Russians, theoretically, reportedly, because they ran out of ammunition. Um, what do you think comes out of that conference? Yeah. We saw very dueling <laughs> they views. They did get dueling visions, quite clear dueling visions. You have the vice president there saying, we are standing with Ukraine. We do see this as essential, America's role here. 
Um, and then you saw somebody like J.D. Vance, the senator from Ohio, who was there basically as a Trump surrogate, we could say, who said in his remarks that, um, we, yes, we like Europe, we like NATO, but uh, don't see Putin as an existential threat to Europe. And that that is something, if you're a European, you probably do not like to hear that. And he basically said, we'll stay part of NATO, but we don't see that as important as we do other places in the world, especially the fight with China. I mean, lastly, Tim, do you see that the, the, the Republican move away from supporting Ukraine, which used to be they were in lockstep with the Democrats and right. now they are not, d does that hurt them in, in an election? Generally speaking, foreign policy is not what decides elections. Now, this could be the year where that changes, but it also could be the year where that doesn't change, where you continue the pattern where people think about their own lives, they look inward, they look to the United States, and they're not looking at foreign policy in that way. And unless Putin, something really does happen yes. <laughs> in Europe, and then that's a different calculation. Amy Walter and Tamara Keith, so nice to see you both. Great Thank you. you. Great to see you. In whatever role he appears, in films or TV, as a lead or as a character actor, Paul Giamatti always makes an impression. Last month, he won a Golden Globe Award for his performance in the film The Holdovers, and the role has now brought him his first Best Actor Oscar nomination. He recently spoke with Jeffrey Brown for our arts and culture series, Canvas. I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. In The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti plays Paul Hunnam, a crusty 1970s-era New England prep school teacher, ever ready to quote Marcus Aurelius and take down his pampered charges. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely. The setting was well known to Giamatti, who had himself attended such a prep school as a teenager and comes from a family of educators, including his father, Bartlett Giamatti, who served as president of Yale University. But familiarity also presented an unfamiliar acting challenge. It's one of the first times I've ever felt that sort of close to something, you know, where there was that much available to me, consciously and unconsciously, which was a good thing. I mean, and I was drawing in lots of, in a deep well of things, but yes, it was sometimes uh, kind of uncomfortable. I was like, wow, I, I'm not acting enough. What does that mean, I'm not acting enough? This feels so familiar to me that I wonder if I'm doing Am I, am I doing enough? Am I doing the, the job well? I've never had the experience before of this. It was a really peculiar, peculiar thing. So how did you deal with it? How did you overcome it? I just kept doing it. <laughs> the Germans have been reinforcing two regiments all day. Giamatti has made his mark in small parts, saving Private Ryan in 1998. When someone talks to you as though you are of no consequence, you have two choices. And large, the Showtime series Billions. He's been a primate in Planet of the Apes and a founding father in the HBO series John Adams, for which he won an Emmy. Now either you are stuck raving mad or I am. Good day, sir. A breakthrough star turn came in 2004 with Sideways, directed by Alexander Payne, with whom he's reunited for The Holdovers. Need I remind you 
that it is not my fault that you are stuck here. In which three wounded souls find themselves left behind during the Christmas break. Giamatti's Hunnam, a troubled student played by Dominic Sessa, and the school's cafeteria manager, a grieving mother whose son died in Vietnam, played by Davine Joy Randolph, herself a Golden Globe winner and Best Supporting Actress nominee. Can we say it's his birthday? It's my birthday. It's brilliant ensemble acting, and for Giamatti, the very essence of his profession. It's interesting, the whole idea of sort of chemistry, because people often ask actors, like, how is it that you find this chemistry? And I actually just think it's, at bottom, it's, it's my job. It's my job to get along with other people. <laughs> it's my job to engage. You mean in a staged or in a yes, theatrical? In a, yes, but it's yeah. my job to find something that I connect with these people and then can do it. It really seems at bottom mostly what I do is to try to find chemistry. And sometimes you have to fake it. And it'll still, if you're good at it, it'll still look like it works. But, but then most of the time you have something like this where we all just melded and it was really nice and we had that magical thing just happening anyway. He knows your character that everybody can't stand him. He, he kind of likes it that people can't stand him to some extent. He also knows, though, and this is where I think you, I mean, you struck me as doing something very interesting. He knows the holes in himself, that somehow you have to show us that. Yeah. Well, he has a, a self-awareness. He's a self-aware man, which is probably only makes life harder for him. Probably if he was more oblivious, he would be better off. And hopefully, yes, you see these kinds of holes in him and, and his awareness of them, and that gives you some sympathy for him. But that blue-blooded Prix family had allies on the faculty. I mean, their last name is on a library, for Christ's sake. So he accused me in order to sanitize his treachery, and uh, they threw me out. But how do you do that as an actor? How do you bring that out? I'm thinking of roles where you're talking a lot more mm -hmm. and where you're emoting a lot more. Mm -hmm. This character is a little calmer, a little quieter, for the most part. Yes, for the most part. Yes, that's interesting. I start from the script. I mean, I really do. That's the basis and the foundation of the thing. And I'll discover more about the character the more I sort of investigate the script. And the interesting thing with film is so much of film really, really lives in the inarticulate moments, the wordless moments. Do you like those moments? I actually like those the most in things. We're film acting where it flowers because, because you're expressing everything just through, you know, it's all just bodily expression. And that's amazing because, you know, it's, it's, it's the kind of exploration of, of consciousness and unconsciousness and things like that that makes film different from stage. Always, though, his decision to take a role begins with the script itself. A close reading to see if he wants to keep turning the pages. I'm not being facetious when I say this, but to actually just keep reading the script. If that's what I get is the script at first, which is usually what I want to see first. You know, even before I'll meet the director or something, I want to see what the story is. If the story compels me to keep reading it, that's the most important thing. Then it'll be maybe the character and the director and who else is doing it. I'm lucky to be able to choose like that. It wasn't always like that, I no. assume. No, it's not for most <laughs> actors, no. Or even for you or at some point, right? Well, no, definitely for a long time. Did you have doubts about uh, whether it would all work? Sure. I don't think there's an actor alive who doesn't have doubts 
who hasn't sort of encountered doubt at some point, if not all the time, sure. You just don't know. It's such a crazy gamble of a thing to do with yourself. Do you have any sense of why it worked out? <laughs> what do you tell yourself? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, at the same time, I had a funny sort of sense that I'd manage, I would manage to find work. I had this a funny kind of low-level confidence that I'd find stuff to do. Low-level? Yeah, low-level of confidence. I wasn't going to go too far. You know, I didn't want to jinx things. But I had a sense that, you know, doing, as you say, the kind of character actor work, I'd find stuff, I'd be okay. But you know, you go through rough patches where you're not sure, you know? And then, I don't know, I just kept enjoying it, I kept loving it, so that kept me going. In the meantime, congratulations, Paul Giamatti, thanks for talking to us. Yeah, my pleasure, man, thank you. Online, hear more from Paul Giamatti, including what his favorite holiday is and why. That's on our YouTube page. In Nashville, Valor Collegiate Academy encourages students to share what's going on in their lives and to accept support from others. Tonight, we hear from high school teacher Natalie Nikitas and some Valor students as they give their brief but spectacular take on building trust. When I go somewhere, the Uber driver's talking and you know, inevitably they ask, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a teacher. They go, oh, and they have, you know, their reaction. And a lot of times they're like, well, why? And I always ask them, well, like, who is your favorite teacher? 99% of the time, they're able to name the person. And 99% of the time, they smile. I don't, yeah, I don't know another profession other than like being a superhero, I guess, that could, that could do that. I teach here at Valor College Prep. I teach 11th grade AP US history. At Valor, the focus is much more so on social and emotional learning, teaching students how to like basically like navigate the onslaught of emotions and feelings that they're experiencing every single day, along with traditional math, science, social studies. Kick us off, Jester. Hi, my name is Jester. I'm feeling kind of nervous today. Valor, Valor is, uh, in a word, unique. <laughs> so Circle, the best way that I've come to describe it is it's halfway between a group therapy session and an AA meeting. Circle basically is about like a 55-minute experience where students will sit together and basically take the time to share how they're feeling. I'm feeling kind of worried today. I'm feeling a little bit stressed, but mostly excited. I'm feeling a mix of like stress, but as well as like kind of at peace. It's a moment for us to decompress and focus in on how we're doing emotionally and give us just that sort of safe space to just be a collective individually. What if I don't get the scholarship I had before and I have to like actually like, you know, pull weight a lot more? Because I didn't study and I regret it a lot because I feel like I should have listened to my mom when she told me. Um, so I definitely understand like the idea of like procrastinating, but I definitely feel like that same pressure you're under, like wanting to do like really well so you can apply to college and get your scholarships and everything. Um, I also resonate with like the fact of like um, how like your mom was saying, like making sure you study. Also kind of did the same thing with mine. <laughs> On our best days, I truly have seen like students like look out for one another and make connections that I think every teacher um, and member of a school like hopes to see. Expressing my worries about school and the stress and like the overwhelming feelings that I usually have throughout the day in class, I think talking about those are pretty relieving because you realize that almost everybody's feeling the exact same way. 
I shared last year, my 10th grade year, it was my first time in front of everybody. Like, I was, I was nervous. You just like getting put on the spotlight, basically. You just talking and people are just listening to you and looking at you, so. I was telling my teacher like, I didn't want to do it. You're supposed to have them share out their, basically like their feelings, their emotions, their struggles. A student isn't gonna do that unless they trust you. And to do that is a feat. Um, but if you do it well, the reward is astronomical. I personally really disliked it as a middle schooler. I just really didn't think sitting down talking about my feelings was important. But over time throughout the years, I started to realize that it was actually something that was like useful to me. People know who I am today, like at Valor. They know what I went through and everything. The hardest part is being vulnerable, but in almost every circle I've ever been in, vulnerability is always met with support. I'm able to trust more with people that I love, like my friends. Even if we don't understand what a teenager is going through, to say, you know, it it is tough, your feelings are valid. For a student to hear that from a teacher, like they actually care about them as a human being, what I've seen happen is students start to excel. There's more to life than all this. You know, there's a lot of stress in school, and I realized I was kind of working myself to death. This is my life. No one can take that away from me. So what I've been doing for the past couple of days is just, you know, just appreciating the things in life that I have. So I want to appreciate Chris. It's like, how are you even the same person right now? You have just taken such an initiative and said, I'm not just going to sit here, I'm going to do everything I can to be the person I want to be. Once you see students like open up, it's like, this is everything that we've been trying to do. And like for one brief magical moment, students get to feel like a whole. I think without Recognizing students as whole humans with desires and dreams and setbacks and obstacles, then we're truly missing out on half of a student. You already? <laughs> my name is Natalie Nikitas, and this is my brief but spectacular take on building trust in a circle. Tonight's Brief But Spectacular is part of a six-part collection on the future of education. The entire series can be seen on our website, pbs.org slash newshour. Later tonight on PBS, Independent Lens premieres a documentary about how a group of women and LGBTQ plus journalists banded together to launch the nonprofit newsroom, The 19th. Breaking the News airs at 10 p.m. Eastern. Check your local listings. And that is the NewsHour for tonight. I'm William Brangham. On behalf of the entire NewsHour team, thank you so much for joining us. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. The Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them faced terrible violence and even death if caught. 
But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast American History Tellers takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.